thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at The Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. If I were to say groupthink, you would probably imagine lazy, complacent decision-making. Or at least that's what Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's special advisor, said about the UK government response to the COVID-19 pandemic. But what if I were to say group thinking? That would imply collaboration, people getting together and coming up with an idea that's better than all the individual ideas they started out with. Greater than the sum of its parts is the mantra. And that's the distinction we're trying to tease out this week. Where to start? With football, I suggest. Why do fans get so hot under the collar about their own form of groupthink? Here's Sander van der Linden spilling the beans on the Naked Scientist podcast, Football Under the Microscope. Very famous psychology experiment that was done in the 70s that uh, was called the minimal group paradigm. And so they were trying to figure out what are the minimal conditions for establishing group membership. And they found that using the most arbitrary criteria, uh, you can create categories of groups and people will slowly start identifying with those groups no matter how arbitrary they are. So for example, if I give half the the room a red t-shirt and half the room a yellow t-shirt, people who have the yellow Ah. t-shirt will start identifying with other people who are wearing yellow t-shirts, even though they have nothing in common with those individuals and slowly start disliking the group with the red t-shirts. And this is how intergroup conflict gets started. By the way, we'll be discussing football and sport in a forthcoming episode of Naked Reflections. But for now, With me to discuss groupthink and group thinking are Dr. Kitty Alone, social psychologist and research fellow here at the Wolf Institute and the Naked Reflections regular. And it's welcome back to Neil Mercer, Emeritus Professor of Education at the University of Cambridge. Neil is Director of Oracy Cambridge, the Centre for Effective Spoken Communication. He's also a psychologist whose research focuses on children's language and reasoning skills, as well as the influence of teachers on their development. Welcome both. Let's start with you, Kitty. Tell us about the minimal group paradigm. Well, the minimal group paradigm is a very widely used experimental methodology in social psychology. And it was originally developed by a rather remarkable man called Henri Tajfel, 
who was most known for his, his work on social identity theory. And Tajfel had a very interesting backstory. He himself was a Polish Jew who escaped Nazi um, persecution and dedicated the rest of his academic life to understanding human prejudice. And basically what the minimal group paradigm does is split people into two groups on the most arbitrary and meaningless of criteria and see how it impacts their behaviour, particularly in relation to in-group favouritism. And what he found, and what multiple studies have found, is that just assigning people to an artificial group is enough to trigger this in-group bias. So what it tells us is that even in the absence of conflict for resources, people favour their own group, um, that people really just on the basis of arbitrary criteria form a sense of groupness and this is enough to trigger in-group bias. So in terms of its impact on social psychology, it's absolutely enormous Um, and it also tells us a lot about our existence as group beings. It doesn't take much to belong to a group if you're a human being. And Neil, this starts at a young age, I assume. Yes, I think people are designed evolutionarily to to kind of relate to groups and to the people around us. Unlike most animals, we don't have much instinct. We have a lot of learning ability. And so that's one of the things we're able to do. And young humans can learn very quickly and take up aspects of the identity of that group. It even applies to things like food. Food tastes in different parts of the world are shaped quite early in, in accord with those that are in the local culture. At the beginning, I applied pejoratively a description to the term groupthink to mean lazy or unimaginative. Neil, tell us about your concept of interthink, a different way of looking at group thinking. This is a concept that, in fact, my wife, Lynn Dawes, and I came up with when we were working with Rupert Wegerith, who's a professor at Cambridge as well. And um, the interesting thing about it is we don't know who of us thought of it. And that's the whole point, is that it was the creation of our discussions. And it would be, unless we had the recordings, it'd be very hard to attribute the original idea to any one of us. And that's because we were thinking in a productive way, basing our thinking on common knowledge and aimed towards a common goal, which was making sense of the sort of research we were doing, the data we were getting of children working in groups. What we came up with was this idea that when people are, working well together in a collaborative way, they're not just interacting, they're interthinking. And it relates to the idea of Vygotsky, you know, the Russian developmental psychologist, who suggested that children learn really to think by thinking collectively first and then internalising the way um, they think with other people. And when, for example, if you get involved in reasoned discussions and you internalise them, then that's what one would hope an educated person would be, that somebody who can have a, a, a discussion with themselves on the one hand, on the other hand, and so on like that. So the, the idea of thinking collectively into thinking is, is important in, for what it achieves in itself when people are together solving problems, but it's also quite important developmentally because it seems children learn to reason alone by, first of all, reasoning with other people. Does that mean we need to be using the same sort of language that is interthink possible between different cultures? You mentioned it was you and your wife, Linda. And obviously, having lived together and knowing each other, is the interthink effective beyond the intimate family or the intimate group? It is. 
some years ago, I did some research when I was working with a linguist called Chris Canlin on helping teachers of English as a second or other language. We came across some interesting work on how conversations and decision-making and so on happen across different cultures. And one of the things we, we found was that what was important was that people had an awareness of potential difference across the culture. In other words, that they were able to expect certain things to operate in different ways. And there were some interesting conversations. I mean, for example, you know, we, we had one example which was between an Australian manufacturer and a Japanese importer. And the Japanese importer's English was reasonable, but the whole point was he'd done a lot more of that kind of negotiation before. So he was aware of the kind of things that might be misunderstood, while the Australian was new to it, and he was often getting things muddled. I think what you can say is as long as people try and bring out into the open the, the norms, as you might say, of discussion and are aware of the differences, then, then that can make a difference. I mean, when we were looking at children talking together in groups to solve problems, uh, and we were trying to get them to use what we call exploratory talk for sort of most reasonable kind of form of discussion. We did that some of that research in Mexico, and we did it with other people in the Netherlands. And we found that one of the things that we thought was in a crucial aspect of interthinking is that you can criticise what somebody else in the group says. As long as you do it respectfully, you can say, I'm sorry, I don't think that's quite right. I think we should look at this a different way. I'm not sure you're right about that. Uh, and that was crucial. What we found was in Mexico, that was considered much more rude than it was in the UK. And so teachers and students were, were much more reluctant to do it. And it had to be couched in much more careful terms. Otherwise, they say, oh, God, we can't do that. And the same applied when we considered this in Japan with the researcher there. On the other hand, in Holland, it seemed like it was perfectly polite to just say rubbish. And they weren't worried by those things in the same way, with the UK being somewhere in the middle. And Kitty, I would have thought that applies to the interfaith world, the world that you're working in, in terms of the communication between different faiths and cultures. Oh, absolutely. So one of the assumptions that people make about, oh, well, to be effective in interfaith, you must highlight the commonalities between people. But of course, as Neil is saying, what is just as important is to highlight the differences, to make them explicit so that people aren't thrown off when suddenly there is a norm that they're not aware of or something that's completely out of their bounds of sort of cultural awareness. So, yes, this idea of being aware of difference, I think, is extremely important, particularly in interfaith work. It's all very well to sort of harp on about how we're all brothers of Abraham or, you know, we're all people of faith. But to understand difference is just as, if not more important than understanding the commonality. Neil, in the classroom, presumably, you know, we are an incredibly diverse multicultural society. In fact, we'll be dealing with multiculturalism soon on this podcast. Are there not just anecdotes, but examples, practical examples, tangible examples you can give us? I'm not sure I can think of a specific example uh, that fits that. What I can say, though, is that I think what children have got to learn and be taught by their teacher when it comes to having discussions in school is that they shouldn't necessarily expect them to be run on the same lines or with the same principles as those they have anywhere else. For example, it's perfectly acceptable when you're having a casual conversation with your friend to just agree with something they say to be nice, you know, 
because you don't want to upset them. And, you you know, you might as well say, yeah, I agree, that's fine. But when it comes to an important group decision in terms of solving a problem and actually trying to reach a solution that's correct, you can't afford to do that. So you've got to change your mind. Likewise, children might sometimes just naturally oppose someone they don't like because they just don't like them. And any idea they come up with, I say children, people uh, might do this. But if you want it to work well and you want to interthink, you've got to put aside the out-of-school or out-of-personal differences and operate on a different level and follow, as we put it, different ground rules, different norms, if you want the collective thinking to work well. Could you give us an example, Kitty, from your work where actually dealing with difference has been fundamental to that communication and that development of some kind of interthink or uh, group thinking? The example that I'm thinking of sort of pertains to differences surrounding cultural norms. So there've been a couple of times during the fieldwork um, that I've undertaken for the Measures of Success project, where you'll have a project involving people of different faiths, and there are particular norms surrounding food, for example, like kosher food or prayer times. These are things that need to be made explicit to the other religion to understand why the other person is doing these things. So on the face of it, this really bizarre sort of, I don't understand their their food preferences. I don't understand why they need to go out five times a day. Um, these are things that need to be made explicit and need to be sort of dealt with openly so that, for example, the Christian participants will understand why they need to be aware and mindful of their Muslim colleagues going out to pray, for example. So yes, this idea of making difference, particularly surrounding cultural and social norms explicit, I think is very important in interfaith. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Neil Mercer and Kitty Alone, and we're discussing groupthink and group thinking. Science has its lone geniuses, but the tradition of collaboration and data sharing is well established when it comes to research. This can be an informal arrangement between like-minded individuals, or it can work at an institutional level. Natalia Landazuri described how the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm has collaborated with the Mayo Clinic in the USA in the eLife podcast, Glowing Squid and Electric Anxiety. The way the world is changing, the way it is so easy to interact with people across the world with the help of technologies, uh, the easiness to access information online and uh, gather information has changed the extent to which collaboration can happen. And also the way knowledge is being built We have so much more knowledge from so many different areas that gathering that increases the need for collaboration across the world, really, and across uh, disciplines. Networks and technology can be constructive in this way, but they can also be problematic. Can our networks simply be echo chambers for like-minded people? So this idea of, of groupthink has come up as sometimes as a, a suggestion that only individuals can make good decisions. And when you get in a group, it all just goes around and terrible things come out. And as I said, it's in contrast to the idea of interthinking, which is that best decisions and creative human achievements are almost always collective. And really, 
they're not incompatible, those two points of view. If you move to the level of understanding what hidden norms or implicit norms apply in group decisions. For example, in this discussion we're having now, we're following some ground rules. For example, if I notice that Kit is in full swing with something interesting to say, I will not jump in because it's not that kind of conversation. So one of the norms here is, one of the ground rules is, if another speaker's on song and speaking, you keep quiet and you wait. And the second rule is you wait for Ed to introduce the new topic, the, the chair, if you like. So if we broke those rules, it would be disastrous, wouldn't it? But we're all following them without them actually being handed out on a bit of card. What happens in some group decision-making situations, Janice's research suggests, is that people use background rules such as, well, I'm only a junior member of this group, so although I know something really important, I won't say anything. Or because I'm only a junior member of this group, I won't contradict the leader. The leader, on the other hand, might be following the ground rule. My opinion counts more than anybody else's. And that guy's only joined us recently, so his opinions can't really matter. So what gets taken as a consensus isn't really a consensus at all. And what we suggest is if you agree formally to say what rules are we going to follow, what ground rules are we going to follow, such as we'll share all information, everybody will take a turn, everybody will contribute, you can question an idea but you do it critically but respectfully, and you give reasons for your views, and we try and reach a consensus based on the best evidence available, then you don't get groupthink. It gets transcended because people are self-consciously avoiding the pitfalls of it, and they are then into thinking. So this is why the two things are completely compatible once you move to the other underlying level of understanding discourse or talk to see that it's governed by these things that are rarely made explicit. And I think it's also important to remember as a species, to remember our evolutionary history. I mean, we are thoroughly social beings. We didn't evolve to operate individually no man is an island, as John Dunn said, and that's certainly the case for the human species. So this idea of the lone genius is so deeply flawed. I mean, think of something like the discovery of the wheel. I mean, it's highly doubtful that one person somewhere just suddenly came up with that. That would have been maybe a process that would have gone through various iterations. It would have been sort of a collective discussion with people adding their ideas and a fine-tuning process that eventually led to an outcome that was beneficial for the group. Um, As I said, it's highly unlikely that it's just one person that suddenly had this amazing idea. And I think it's also important to remember that as social species, we are extremely adept at picking up cues of, of social norms. And when you think about it, the information that we receive is sort of fraught with ambiguity. Even language itself, which is sort of held up as being this wonderful communication tool, is inherently ambiguous. It's sometimes sort of amazing to me that we haven't managed to get anything done. There are so many confusing signals that come through. But yet somehow, as a species, we've managed to evolve the optimal way of of sort of processing this ambiguous information and being able to come together as a group and work collectively. I think this issue of language is quite important. The issue of, yes, we mean different things. Often when we use the same words, the very word mission can mean something very different depending on the context in which it's said. But at the same time, isn't that part of our human condition, being able to decipher or fail to decipher these terms? Yes, it is. I think it is quite right that our human evolution has set us up to be essentially collective thinkers. We have a brain which is a social brain, 
we've sacrificed instinct for the flexibility of learning. And we also have developed in conjunction with that brain the tool of language, which is nothing comparable in any other species. And language is essentially a tool for interthinking. That's why it's evolved. And I think sometimes its, its limitations are overstated. I mean, and also its, its strengths, if you like. Stephen Pinker, for example, has once said that, isn't it marvellous that I can, by just making some sounds with my mouth, I can cause a precise idea to enter your head? And I would say it would be marvellous if it was true. And it's not true because the sounds I make relate to the meaning of the words as I understand them. But if we've not, say, for example, jointly defined interthinking before, it could mean something rather different to Ed and to Kitty. And so what we've actually got is the potential for thinking in concert and thinking together, but it has to be worked out. And so he's not right when it comes to that. On the other hand, it's also not the case that those thoughts we have are locked inside our individual heads. We can eventually make someone understand, you know, what we mean by taking the time to do so. And that's when it becomes important. I mean, uh, you know, Isaac Newton, the very university that we're related to, didn't really have a theory of gravity until he could get at least one other person to understand what he was on about. Up till then, it was just some ideas in a, a fellow's head. And it was only when at least one other person understood it, it became science. That's what we really need to uh, to bear in mind, that both the strengths and the limitations of language. Yeah, so just following on from what Neil was saying, when people say, oh, well, language is so cut and dried, if you take the Stephen Pinker view that you utter something and that immediately puts the correct set of beliefs and assumptions in the other person's head, but that's entirely false and in some cases devastating. So the example I always think of is the Derek Bentley case in 1952 where him and Christopher Craig, I think they broke into a warehouse and Christopher Craig had a gun and Derek Bentley uttered the famous line, let him have it, Chris. And of course, this is completely ambiguous. He could be saying, let him have it, Chris, give him the gun. Or he could be saying, let him have it, Chris, shoot him. And ultimately that determined his life and Derek Bentley was found guilty. So language isn't cut and dry. There is huge ambiguity and there's a huge disconnect between what somebody says and what somebody means. But despite this, as a species, we are very good at sort of filling in these blanks, but it's not a foolproof process and it's by no means perfect. There's a lovely story I know that epitomizes exactly what you just said, Kitty, which is someone who wants to play tennis and all the tennis courts were full, except for the one at the private club, uh, which had a sign on the outside, members only, no others allowed. Well, he looked at the sign and walked straight onto the court and he wasn't the member. And the secretary came out and said, what are you doing? How can you play tennis? Uh, you know, look at the sign. What does it say? And the person said, members only? No, others allowed. It's all about how the elocution, if you like, or how you read that particular phrase. And in, in scripture, of course, there aren't full stops. There aren't question marks, which leaves a great deal of room for interpretation ambiguity. But I'd like to pick up on something you just said, both of you, actually, with this point of the collective thinking. So let's assume we've got to a point where the group thinking has reached a, a some kind of consensus. Haven't we also got the problem when another group has reached a different consensus and we sort of engage in an adversarial model, gladiatorial even, which is deeply problematic? Once a group has formed its collective view, then it can very easily be presented as an oppositional view to that of another group. Kitty mentioned Henri Tajfel earlier as a social psychologist, and his work on intergroup relations was 
was really some of the most insightful work that's ever been done on this. And it really was sort of saying that because of our need for an identity, we will sometimes almost define ourselves in opposition to another group just to show who we really are. And I think, you know, you can see that applying to things like the Brexit decision, where people wanted something to define themselves as British. And to do so, they sometimes felt it necessary to show what they were not and what they did not see as part of British identity. And so I think that is, again, for better or worse, it's an evolutionary tray, if you like, of humanity. And it's very hard to get round. You inevitably are going to identify in some way with some sort of group. And you, and you will take on characteristics of the group that you might not have done before. When I was younger, you know, if you, if you became a goth, you had to start putting coal on your eyes and dye your hair. So, you know, it wasn't arbitrary that. If you, if, you, if you wanted to be accepted by that group, you had to make physical, you know, representations of your membership. And you would also agree certain certain things about music and so on. And that's a sort of relatively harmless version of something that can be much more profoundly difficult. We touched on that earlier, didn't we, with the clip about the yellow and red shirts, the football sense of the tribalism that goes with that. I want to end on a positive note with some positive examples of collective thinking in action. We've talked perhaps about some of the negative ones, and and we've also talked about some individual positive examples. But what about collective decision-making that has improved wider society? Could we end with an example from each of you? I think you can see during the pandemic, there were lots of false starts and failures in the way the uh, situation was dealt with in the UK. But I think you can see as it went on, as more and more people saw the importance and became convinced of the importance of lockdowns, and it became more clearly explained. I think some of the people who started to appear uh, on our screens to explain what was going were, were obviously doing it in more effective language. What you actually had was something that's turned around a disastrous situation where we were probably one of the worst places in the world to be when it happened to, along with the development of the vaccines, to one of the most successful in dealing with it at this late stage. And that's all down to collective activity. You know, it's true that we only really are going to get out of this if we all think the same way. And thank goodness the dissenting groups such as anti-vaxxers and and the people who are against wearing masks are a relatively small group. And so you've actually got something which is fairly cohesive in Britain at the moment about how we should deal with this situation. A mixture of media events, use of language, presentations. It must have happened on relatively local levels uh, amongst people saying, you know, I'm going to go along with this. Why are you doing that? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, okay, let's agree. And unless that happened, we wouldn't be in this situation. You'd have a a country of individuals all doing whatever they liked and, and it wouldn't have really worked. Well, the first thing I thought of, which is rather depressing, actually, because you asked for a positive example, so it's probably not the best example. Um, I thought about the ways that human societies have regulated systems of punishment. So that is a huge collaborative effort. Retributive justice is so costly and so detrimental to the group that as a society to have come together and put this extraordinary sort of institution of punishment together where everybody has a particular role to play. And ultimately, the net gain is that it's more um, beneficial for society. It's actually a fantastic example of um, collaborative thinking. But I guess um, a slightly more optimistic example would be 
community responses to tragedy. So you see this, particularly in the interfaith work that I've done, very often groups that are determined along ethnic or religious lines, despite sort of living almost sort of separate lives, when there is a tragedy, so for example, the Christchurch mosque shooting, what we saw in the UK was a very coordinated community response with members of different religions, different ethnicities coming together to sort of make a collective stand and say this is not acceptable, this is not okay. They're very much sort of a collective stance against violence or extremism so and again that was seen in responses to Grenfell Tower that you had particularly again religious communities were at the center of bringing these disparate um, groups together to produce a collective action that was beneficial for the wider community. Thank you Kitty for letting us end on a positive note we've come to a collective decision to end this podcast right now. Thanks to my guests Kitty Alone and Neil Mercer and thanks to you too for listening. Please do contact us at Naked Reflections. I promise we'll get back to you. You can find us at the Wolf Institute. Simply email, send a Facebook message or via Twitter. And check out our back catalogue of discussions and have a listen to our new podcast, The A to Z of the Holy Land from Arab to Zion. You can also find the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientists.com slash reflections or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back next week with something else on my mind. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.